Welcome again to Bayou City. We're really, really glad that you're here. If you'll pull your Bible out, set it on your lap, or open up your phone and turn to a Bible app. To Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, really would love for you to be able to lay your eyes on the passage of scripture we're going to concentrate on this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, and in your listening guide, you can also write down Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, and John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. We're going to be turning there in just a little bit. How did you know when you became an adult? Uh Uh-oh. Was it a, a, a marker? Was there an event? Was it when you graduated from college, your first job or the first job that meant you could fund your own life and you didn't need your parents' financial support anymore? Uh, was it when you got married or when you had kids or um, the, the, your first what you would consider, quote unquote, your real job, like the job that you were dreaming of, about? How did you know that, that you were an adult? Um, you know, Probably for many of us, it was just a lot of things happen, and one day we woke up, and I got these three kids. I guess I'm an adult now. Like it, it, it wasn't a defining moment, but you just realized that you were. The Bible talks a lot about us growing spiritually from children to adulthood. So the question I want to answer today is: How do I know when I'm a spiritual adult? What are the markers? What are the signs? How will I know when I'm spiritually grown? Ephesians chapter four. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 11 And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So in the church, there are apostles. Uh, This means sent out. In the scripture, there are capital A apostles. That's how we would refer to them. These are eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, These are the people that God inspired to write the scripture. Uh, There are no more capital A apostles. So no one alive today is an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. You can't go home, uh, be inspired by a cup of coffee, write down a few spiritual thoughts and staple that page into the back of your Bible. It doesn't work like that. Those are the capital A apostles, but they're also in the scripture what I would call lowercase apostles, right? Uh, they're, they're just ones who are sent out. Um, they are missionaries kind of in our church vernacular, but it doesn't mean that they leave their home to go uh, and move to a, a foreign place. It just means somebody who is called and equipped to start kingdom ventures. Uh, like most of you know that we are very pregnant with a Bayou City Tomball uh, here, and, and we have a core team of people who are being sent out. 
uh, they're committed. You know, some of us are sort of on the fence. Like, hey, they, if they get out there and it starts and I, I, I like it and I kind of live in between, maybe I'll pop out there. Uh, that's different than these 70 people who have said, we live in this area, we care about our community, we believe that God is in this, and success or fail, we are on this team. They are being apostolic in that way. And God has gifted the church with these kinds of apostles. He's also gifted the church with prophets. The New Testament prophecy is when the Spirit of God speaks to a follower of Jesus in a specific way to obey Jesus. So, for example, we are all to love our neighbor. A person with these spiritual gifts of prophecy may be praying for you that you would love your neighbor and do that well, but they would get a picture in their mind or something would come into their heart. It would be a specific way for you to love your neighbor. Hey, I was praying for you, and I know that you're really praying for your neighbor and you care about your neighbor. You want them to come to church. I think that if you did dot, 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 that might be effective. And then you take that word seriously, you do that thing, and sure enough, that person comes to church with you or they have a spiritual conversation with you in which you've, you, you, you've never done it. They are able to hear from God a specific way to obey the scripture. And God has gifted the church with prophets, with evangelists. These are people who are passionate and effective at sharing the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return. There are shepherds. These are the people who provide spiritual and physical care um, for the flock. Right. If you experience loss, you don't want the apostle knocking on your door to come and minister to you because they're more likely to be to say, hey, there are great things ahead of you. And let's just kind of get on with this. And uh, how can we turn this uh, very sad thing into an opportunity uh, to build up the kingdom of Jesus? And you're like, hey, I just need to sit in this for a while. You want a shepherd to come to you who's going to care for you, who's going to be tender with you, who can gently lead you through that time of loss. And there are teachers. These are the people who help us understand. Understand God, understand his ways, understand his word. And God has provided the church with these kinds of people. Why? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now in our culture, when you say saint, it means a select few exceptional people. Very few people can become saints. Uh, They're not ordinary. Uh, They are extraordinary and they do extraordinary things. And so they're lifted up and they're given this title. But the Bible uses the word saint in almost the exact opposite way. Uh, Saint means a holy one. And the scripture makes it clear that we are holy in Christ. So when you become a follower of Jesus, you become a saint. Now you may not always act like a saint, But you become a saint. So when you see the word saint in the scripture, it's not for just a few handful of overachievers. It's for regular people. And who has ministry? The saints, regular people, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which means if you would consider yourself a regular person, which I think most of us would in here, you have a ministry. In my church growing up, uh, you were called to ministry and it was a humongous deal. It meant that you were going to work vocationally for God. You were going to serve a church. You were going to be a missionary, going to be a youth pastor. You, that was what you were going to do for a living. You may go to, go to college, but you're not going to be an engineer. You're not going to be a teacher. You're not going to be a, a business person. You're going to serve the church. That's what it meant to be called into ministry. And when you were sensing that call, you would come forward at the end of church and declare that to the, all the people. Before God and before you, 
I have been called to ministry. Now, you notice that we don't do that here at Bayou City Fellowship because I don't believe that that's actually scriptural because I think all of us are called to ministry. So if you want us to recognize you today, uh, that'd be great. We'll just all recognize ourselves. All of us have a ministry, a, a task that God has placed in your hand. And he's equipped you through the apostles and the teachers and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds to do that task. Usually in a church, you have people at the the ends of the spectrum. You have some people who are doing like five ministries. They're amazing. And then you have the rest of us that are not doing all that much. But really, ideally, probably the middle is where we should live. That every one of us can say, this is how I am continuing the ministry of Jesus. Because that's what the work of ministry is. It's not something new. It's just Jesus' ministry continuing on through us. So God has gifted some of you with compassion. Jesus had a ministry of compassion. When people interacted with him, they were ministered to emotionally, spiritually, physically. If you have a gift of compassion, it may be that Jesus has equipped you to carry on that ministry. So how are you carrying it on? Jesus was a teacher. He's given you some, some of you the spiritual gift of teaching. It's not that you're teaching things new. You're just carrying on the ministry of Jesus. So ask yourself, what am I doing today that Jesus did? And whatever that is, that's your ministry. And if you would say, well, I nothing actually, then you start praying, God, what is it that you want from me? How can I carry on the work of Jesus in my home and in my work and in this world? And what happens when we do that work? It says for the building up of the body of Christ, the the church of God, not just our church, but the church of God around the world is built up. It's added to it's strengthened. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this is the goal. Verse 13, all of that happens until we all attain to the unity of faith. Now there's some debate and discrepancy on what Paul means by unity of the faith. It's my opinion that because he uses the phrase, the faith, He's not talking about unity among believers. He says that clearly in other places in Ephesians. What I believe that he's saying is that our lives would be in unity with our faith. The faith has been handed down to us. The faith will be handed down by us to other generations. The, the, the belief that Jesus is the son of God, the savior of the world, that his ministry opened up the kingdom of God, that his crucifixion provided the forgiveness of our sins, that his resurrection from the dead became our resurrection from the dead, that he re- promised to return and one day he will return. That is the faith. It was handed to you. You'll hand it off to someone else. Unity of the faith is this is what I believe and what I do and what I believe are in sync. I've used the metaphor before, but imagine the front wheels of your car turning to the left and the back wheels of your car turning to the right. You wouldn't go anywhere. 
Unity of the faith is Jesus is moving this direction and I am also moving this direction. The faith says this is the standard and I'm meeting that standard. I've already started to be thinking about my uh, New Year's goals because I'm like that. And, uh, and then I'm also been thinking about like when I will quit those New Year's goals. But right now I'm in the more positive frame of mind. Uh, I read that the reason that most of us quit our New Year's goals is because we lose our motivation. And, and the primary motive, according to this person, which I think is pretty accurate, is not financial. Um, it, it's, it's not relational. Uh, the, the primary goal for change in our life, or the primary motivation for change in our life is progress. If we see progress, then we will keep on moving forward. But when we don't see progress, we quit. Right? That's why if some of us want to shed a few pounds in uh, January, we'll really eat right. January 2nd, 3rd, 4th, we'll hop on the scale on the 5th and be like, nothing happened. We'll hit the gym three days in a row. We'll get into the mirror. We'll do a little flex thing. No measurable change. We're not as likely to go back on the 6th because progress is one of our primary motivations. Well, the same thing happens spiritually. We all want to be in alignment. If you bothered to come to church today in a perfect world, the front wheels of your faith and the back wheels of your life are moving in the same direction. But it's hard to tell if we're making any progress. But when Paul says the unity of the faith, this is the goal, it gives us something to measure. But what is the standard? Look at what the, it says next. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When I was a younger man, middle school, high school, I, I was desperately focused on my height. Uh, I loved basketball and I believed in my earliest years that I would play Division I college basketball for like a team that was on tv that was my goal not one of those teams that's not on tv because they don't count but a real basketball team and I had a player who was my favorite he was one of the players on the team he looked just like me thick head of dark hair just to use your imagination uh he played the same position I did I chose his number uh on my team but I was probably 13 or 14 years old when I realized that he was six foot three and then I looked at my dad not six foot three and I thought well maybe this is not going to work out for me but maybe I'll be the anomaly in my family. Maybe I'll be one of those people that your whole family is short, but you are the giant among. And so I would measure myself all the time. And the way you measure is that you make a little mark on top of your head and then you get a tape measure out. That's how you know that you're growing. You got those marks somewhere in your house. Your kids' marks are there or your grandkids' marks are there. What are our marks of spiritual progress? How do we know? What is the standard? What, what do we measure? Well, that's what he says. To mature manhood, that means to be a full adult, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this is the standard. Jesus is the standard. That's how we know if we are growing in our faith, we measure ourselves against Jesus. And not just our favorite parts of Jesus. Like, oh, Jesus was compassionate. I'm compassionate too. Must be doing pretty good. But the fullness of Christ. Everything that he was, that's the standard. And look at what the phrase was before that. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. How do we know what the standard is? But by knowing the Son of God. And that knowing, it's two parts. It's understanding facts, but it's also experiencing. So when Paul says we grow in the knowledge of the Son of God, it it is understanding more facts about Jesus. It is reading the scripture. It is memorizing the gospels. It, It is being more attuned to who he is and what he has done, but it's also an experience. He talked about that in Philippians chapter three. If you want to turn there with me, verse 10, he's talking about knowing Christ and all that he gave up to know Christ. Actually, we'll start in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. If Paul was just talking about knowing more facts about Jesus, he would not have spoken about this. You would not consider giving up all that you have for the surpassing worth of knowing facts about Jesus. He takes it even a step further. Not only am I willing to give up everything that I have, I also want to know him and the power of his resurrection And I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain from the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you go back and read Philippians later on this afternoon, and you should, because it'll only take you about 11 minutes uh, to do it. It's very doable. You'll notice in chapter one that he's having a debate. He's sitting in prison while he writes Philippians. And he says to the Philippians, you know, I've really been wrestling with it while I've been sitting in prison. I don't know if I want to get out, because if I stay in prison, it means I'm going to be executed, And then I'll be with Christ. But if I get out of prison, I can do more ministry in the world. And that's actually better for you. So I'm kind of torn between the two. I mean, can you imagine saying that? I'm not sure if I want to keep on being alive or I want to be dead. I'm not sure. But that's how deeply he knew Christ already and how much more deeply he wanted to know Christ. Because he says, I want to know what it's like to share in his sufferings. Paul said, I'm willing to take up my cross and walk it all the way to the top of Calvary. Most of us are willing to pick up our cross and walk to the base of Golgotha. Then say, well, I went further than most people. But I'd like to get off this train right here. Paul says, I'll go to the very top. If you suffered... And there is a piece of knowing you in suffering that I'm willing to suffer to. He says, I want to know the power of your resurrection. They put Jesus into the grave. And by God's power, he was raised up on the third day. Paul says, I want to know that. But the only way I'm going to know that is if I suffer first like you suffered. 
So when the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says that we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that's the kind of knowledge he's talking about. Not just uh, Bible trivia. And once we know Christ in that way, we understand the standard by which we measure ourselves. This is how I'm making progress. The standard is the fullness of Christ. But how are we ever going to measure up to Christ? How are we going to compare ourselves to him? Well, Jesus made provision for us in John chapter 16. Because the disciples were in that state. He had been teaching them, speaking with them about what was going to happen. He was going to be captured, crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And, and they didn't get all of the details of that all they knew is that he was with them but now he's not going to be with them anymore and they're sad it says in chapter 16 of John verse 5 but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asked me where are you going but because I've said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart they were sad nevertheless I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the disciples are thinking, how are we going to do this? You've been teaching us, you've been leading us, you've been inspiring us, and now you're going away. Probably the same feeling that we think when we imagine measuring ourselves against the fullness of Jesus. There is no way. And Jesus says, don't worry, it's actually a good thing that I don't stay here because I will send to you the helper, the spirit of truth, who we know is the Holy Spirit. He is the presence of Christ in our life. He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment, meaning when our Front wheels are not aligned with our back wheels. When our faith in Christ and our life, what we do and say, are not in sync, the Holy Spirit convicts us of that. And then more than that, he takes what is Jesus's and he offers it to us. So how can we grow up into the standard of the fullness of Christ, the Spirit of God gives us what is Christ. So humanly speaking, comparing ourselves to Jesus is absolutely impossible. But because Jesus has made provision for us, we can make progress. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So this is a sign that you're still a spiritual child. If you get tossed and blown by everything that you read on the internet. Now that's our version of it. But remember in the first century, um, the Ephesians became Christians 
20, 30, 35 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. We are standing on the back of 2,000 years of church history. So we have lots of order, we have lots of organization, because lots of people have gone before us that we've learned from. We've taken the good, we've left out the bad, and over time we have a lot of structure to our churches. But this is in the Wild West days of Christianity. These believers didn't really have any history to look back on. So they didn't have big church organizations. Usually one town just had one church and that church was usually pretty small. So they were dependent on a few, a handful of experts who would travel around from city to city and teach them. Uh, Eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, people who were in the first wave of Christians, they would travel around to these towns. I mean, that's what the apostle Paul would do. And then he had friends, Titus, Timothy, Silas, Barnabas. He would send those people to these churches and they would come in, they would teach for a week, a month, a a year, however long, and then they would move on to the next town. And so you had that happening. Well, not every teacher who showed up was a good teacher. Uh, Not every teacher who showed up was an honest teacher. A lot of times these churches would take collections of money to support the teacher while they were there in their hometown. So if you were looking for a free payday that didn't take a lot of work, well, hey, I've heard of Jesus. I have some wording that I can use and I can be supported by these people until they figure out that I don't know what I'm talking about. And then I'll just move on to the next town. There was nobody to call. There was, there was no internet to do a Google review on this teacher is not good. Don't listen to them. So people came in and took advantage of these churches. And the apostle Paul is saying, this is how you know you are moving on to spiritual adulthood. When this happens, you know that it's happening. When someone comes in and teaches you something that is not the truth. When they teach you a bad version of the good news, you recognize it. That, that doesn't fit. That's, that's not what we heard. That's not what Paul told us, Silas told us, Timothy told us. But a child is just tossed, blown while this happens. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, anytime I've heard that phrase, speaking the truth in love, Um, it usually meant somebody was getting ready to hurt my feelings. (laughs) Hey, I I just want to speak the truth in love, right? If you just add in love at the end of anything, you can say whatever you want. I mean, that's, you're the worst, but I love you. And that's always a good idea. You should always speak the truth in love, but notice that's not what Paul is talking about. I mean, he's not talking about how to confront one another when we've hurt each other. He's, he's comparing Speaking the truth in love to these bad teachers who have come into Ephesus and blown these little children spiritually, right? They've not spoken the truth and they weren't loving. They didn't care about the people. They cared about themselves. They were being crafty in their schemes and they were using human cunning. But the apostles and the prophets and the shepherds and evangelists and the teachers, the people leading in the church, they are to speak the truth The bad teachers spoke lies. They're supposed to speak the truth because they love the people. And we grow up into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, verse 16, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
You remember when you were going through puberty or maybe you've had a front row seat of somebody who did? Uh, it's, it's awkward uh, for a lot of reasons, but one reason puberty is awkward is because it doesn't happen smoothly. It happens in like fits and spasms. So for example, when I was in the eighth grade, I was four foot 11, very short, but had a very thick mustache. So in one sense, puberty happening. In another sense, nothing happened at all. And that's just kind of the way it works. It just is awkward, awkward, awkward until you grow out of it. And then everything is proportional. Your head is the right size for your body. Uh, Your arms aren't too long or too short. Your legs aren't too long. You don't got one leg longer than the other leg, right? Everything is working properly. And the apostle Paul says, when we are all seeking to grow up into Christ, when we are all making it our pursuit to be spiritual adults, we work together perfectly. But when only some of us are pursuing spiritual growth, we're going to be lanky and we're not going to be fluid and we're not going to be as effective in representing Jesus in this world. That's why your spiritual maturity matters. We are depending on you. Because look what this little phrase he puts in here, when each part is working properly. It puts the responsibility back on us. You're a joint, you're a ligament. You need to be working properly so that we corporately can be working properly. But there are no shortcuts, no quit fixes to spiritual growth. As I mentioned, I was obsessed with height. And and early in high school, I I could tell that my genes were not going to get me to 6'3". But I had heard a rumor that if you put weights on your legs and you hung from something high, (laughs) that over time you could get a few more inches out of your body. And so you better believe that I tried it. I put some weights around my ankles and I went out into my backyard and we had a tree and I hung from that tree for like a day. Wasn't seeing any progress, so of course I quit. (laughs) Just like physical growth, there are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. There are no quick fixes. It's going to take three things. It's going to take a daily surrender. Where every day you wake up and say, Jesus is Lord. Therefore, my life needs to reflect his lordship. There needs to be alignment. This is what I want. And then there has to be daily mindfulness. For most of us, our problem isn't intent. We intend to do the things we are supposed to do. It's just that we're not thinking about it very often. Daily mindfulness and then just good old-fashioned time because your spiritual growth into adulthood is going to be a lot like your physical growth into adulthood. One day you're just going to wake up and know that you're an adult. There's not going to be a I read my Bible this much or I pray this much or I made this good decision. It's just going to take time. but it's worth putting in the work. 
Because how good would it be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I'd give up anything. And I'd do anything to know Christ as deeply as I can. And to make sure that my life reflects that. Let's pray.